The following is part of the teaching ministry of Harvest Bible Chapel in Barrie, Ontario. We believe firmly in proclaiming the Word of God without apology. For more information about our church, visit our website at harvestberry.ca or email us at info@harvestberry.ca. We trust that this message will challenge and transform you. Let's get right to the Word. In fact, I want to read the passage right away. This is Luke chapter 13, 10 through 21 is where we're going to be this morning. Luke 13, uh, 10, uh, speaking of Jesus, everybody there? Ready to go? I know that's what you were doing when Dan was doing the announcements, right? You were turning to your Bible, getting ready. I got it. We're ready? Now, he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. And when Jesus saw her, he called her over And he said to her, woman, you are freed from your disability. He laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, not on the Sabbath. And the Lord answered him, you hypocrites. Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame. All the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. And he said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. All right, we're going to get right uh, to it uh, this morning, and in fact, we're going to do something a little different today. We're going to study... We're going to, if you could take your Bibles and just turn them upside down, we're going to study this passage from the bottom up, if, if that makes sense. Probably don't do that. Um, we're going to, we are going to look at the kind of last verses first and move our way back up through the passage, and we're going to look at those two similes or comparisons that Jesus uh, spoke of right at the end of the passage, uh, that of the mustard seed in verses 18 and 19, and then of leaven or yeast in verses 20 and 21, and both are intended to help us understand better the nature of, listen now, the nature of the kingdom of God. What's the kingdom of God really all about? And presumably he's doing this because they, like us even today, are still a little bit foggy on what exactly is the kingdom of God. My hope is that by the end of this passage and our time together, we're going to have a greater understanding of the kingdom of God and why it's so important. And largely that is because it's the responsibility that each of us bears, and I'm speaking to those of you you here who have professed faith in Christ, you are followers of Jesus Christ, it's our responsibility as citizens of the kingdom of God to be a representative of that kingdom here on earth. Now if you're going to represent it, you should understand it. And um, I wonder, I wonder if we're seeing, maybe because we don't know we're not, if we're seeing the evident impact of the kingdom of God around us. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying with these two similes, because there were some, as he was teaching, as he was doing the work that he was doing, there were some who were just missing it. They weren't seeing it, and they, they should have. And so, so he uses these two similes, and I want you to watch this very quick video here. The first simile is of the mustard seed, a very small seed, and uh, this is a time-lapse video uh, that was shot over five days, and you can see the progress just in five days of the growth of a mustard seed. Just watch this for a second, and, and in fact, uh, if you could extend it over weeks, what you would see is that the mustard seed can actually grow, listen, t- 12 to, uh, to 15 feet, four or five meters in just a few weeks' time. It, it's such a small seed, but it grows so exceedingly fast. And really, uh, that makes it um, 
really, here's a couple of words I want you to remember. It's small, but it's a high-impact performer amongst plants. Well, here's, here's another video, because the second simile is, is, um, is of leaven or yeast, and this one might make you hungry. Because is there anything more awesome than bread rising, and then bread baking, and then bread eating, correct? Bread eating, and I just remember my, my grandmother, how many of you, uh, my mom's mom, I called her nanny, and she used to bake bread. No bread makers back then. She was the bread maker, right? And she would knead the dough, and she'd make it up, and then she'd put it in a bowl on top of the refrigerator with, with a tea towel over it. How many people remember this? Everybody over 50. And with a tea towel over it, and, and I would go, and I would just watch, and you would watch, and you would watch, and that tea towel would be level until, what, the yeast did its work, and the dough was rising. You'd see that tea towel go up. And, and you just knew what was coming. And it was awesome that, that yeast, the leaven that Jesus speaks of here, listen, it's, it's unseen. That's an important word. It's unseen. It's buried in the dough. And it's such a small and insignificant amount. And yet, it's incredibly effective in transforming the dough into something we want to eat, into, into bread. There's inherent, here's another important word, inherent power in the leaven, or in the yeast. And Jesus is saying with these two illustrations, that's the nature of the kingdom of God. It starts out small, it starts out insignificant, it starts out all but unseen. But it has power that is tremendously effective and impactful on the world around it. That's the kingdom of God. That's what we need to understand about it. And that's what sets us up, really. Those two similes set us up for what we're going to see actually what happened prior in the healing of this woman. And for us to simply ask the question that we all need to ask ourselves, how can we know that the kingdom of God has come to where we are? How can I know that the kingdom of God has come to where I am, where I live, my world around me? Am I seeing its impact? Because that's something we, are, we all ought to see and we, we all should want to see in our lives. So let's pray together and then we'll begin working through those first few verses. Uh, Father, your uh, word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And God, we would pray right now that you would show us what we need to see about your kingdom. What, what thoughts of ours need to change, what perspective we need to bring in. And God, may we do all we need to do to see your kingdom impact our world today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen? All right, here, here's what we're going after. You'll know that the kingdom of God has come to where you are when, let's start with this, when the Lord is getting credit for what's going on around you. Okay, when the Lord is getting credit, not that, not that we're taking credit, not that we think we're all that, but that, listen, God is getting uh, the glory for all of it. As the episode uh, wraps up, and you, you understand what happened here, Jesus goes to a synagogue, he sees a woman, she's uh, got this infirmity, she's all bent over as a result, he heals her, the people are happy about it, the religious leaders, not so much, that's what happens, and as it wraps up, we see in verse 17, all the people rejoiced, notice, at all the glorious things, you could circle that word glorious, all the glorious things that were done by Jesus. And Jesus immediately, as this is all playing out, he immediately points to God as the source for it all. He, he makes the comparisons we just looked at. He points to the kingdom of God and he says, this is what happens when the kingdom of God comes to a place and to a people. He points to his father. In fact, the woman understood this because in verse 13 it says, she glorified God herself. He's getting the credit for it all. And I think about this woman glorifying God, and I think about her life, and, and I realize that here she was coming to the synagogue like she had always come to the synagogue, week after week, just going to the synagogue, 18 years of going. 
18 years of having this affliction as she goes. She's going as a believer because Jesus actually calls her a daughter of Abraham. He wouldn't have called her that if she wasn't a believer in the promises God had laid down, if she wasn't a worshiper of Yahweh. She's a true daughter of Abraham. And what's intriguing to me is that she was coming week after week not embittered by her circumstances. Oh, life is too hard. I don't feel well today. I have this infirmity. It's so hard to walk. I don't want to go to synagogue. I mean, wouldn't it be just so much easier just to be mad at God over the whole thing? And why did you make me this way? And why do I have this affliction? And why is life so hard for me? And then just to bag the whole thing and not even bother going? I mean, if you're angry at God, the last place you want to be is a synagogue or a church. But not her. She's not embittered. She's not angry at God. She's there worshiping her, him. And, and in fact, even in her infirmity, she didn't go to synagogue that day thinking, you know what, I think today's the day I'm going to be healed. She's just going because it was another Sabbath day. And that was the thing he did. And, and, and really in all of that, isn't she already glorifying God? Isn't her life already a shining example of someone who's accepting whatever God sent her way and, and she's praising him and glorifying him and she's in the place where she ought to be? She's already glorifying him. And, so, and she goes, she's not looking for healing, it just happened and, and if it hadn't happened, she would have been the, there the next week, but it, it did happen. Her circumstances weren't dictating her relationship with God. But then having been healed, she knew that God, in fact, had done this gracious and glorious act for her through Jesus. And she knew right away, because of the manner of her life, she knew right away who should get the credit. She, go, she glorified God. Now, I'm, I'm becoming more and more aware, and I don't know if it's the length of years that I've been in ministry, in pastoral ministry, the length of years I've been in the church, and all the things that I've seen. Or I don't know if it's just because I'm getting older myself, and I'm just seeing these things with greater clarity. But I'm becoming increasingly aware that absolutely everything good that's happening in my life, in my marriage, in my family, everything good that's happening around me in this church, I'm just increasingly aware that it's God. And, and, I, and I think about the other side of it, and I think about all the bad things that have happened. I think about all the, the heartaches and the bad decisions and the, the, the things that have been hurtful in my life and things that have happened here in this church even in the past. And I think about all of those things, and I just realize that's all the result of sin, and that's not on God, and that's, that's me. That's my, that's my choices. It's, it's my bad decisions. It's my lack of discernment and wisdom. It's my lack and my failings that have brought about all these bad things, but all the good, that's the Lord. He's so awesome. When I see all the good things that are happening around here, when someone gives their life to Christ, we have some people in the last couple of weeks who have just professed their faith in Christ. When I, when, you know, how many of you were here last weekend and you saw those 16 people get baptized in the three services last weekend and testifying to their faith in Christ? We had, we had I think, uh, 11 uh, 10 or 11 who were planned to be baptized and then a, a bunch of others who just decided in the moment that they were going to get baptized. When I see that happening, that, that, that's not happening because any of us are clever or because we have some great strategies for ministry or, or we're persuasive enough. It's, it's God that's doing all of this, Amen. It's God who's doing all of this, and, and he gets the credit. When, it, when a marriage is brought back together or, or a, a good marriage is made better, that's, that's not because we handed out a devotional book or because, or, or, or because we counseled somebody or because some work was done to help someone along. It's, it's all the Lord if an, an addiction is overcome, if people are finding strength in their walk in Christ in a way they never did before. That's, that's all God. He gets the credit, not us. These are glorious things, amen? The glorious things. And so that's a great starting point. Notice too, though, that you'll know the kingdom of God has come to where you are. This follows hard on the first, hard after the first one. The believers are rejoicing in it all. If, if God is getting the glory at these great things that are happening, then there will be this ongoing, perpetual sense of joy among, amongst the people of God. 
There should be worship and celebration. It's, it's described in the, in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 2, verse 43, in fact, when, when the early church has just been inaugurated, the Lord has ascended to heaven, he sent the Holy Spirit, and, and the church starts out, and people are getting saved. Some 3,000 people come to Christ and are baptized, and it says that the church was, had this sense of awe that came upon every soul because of the thing the Lord was doing, I want that sense of awe here. And at the healing of this woman in this synagogue, verse 17, it says that the, all the people, all the people rejoiced. And why wouldn't they? I mean, they were seeing something supernatural happen. Not, not natural. Lots of natural things happening on a regular basis all around us. That's, that's the norm. But, but this was supernatural. It's, it's, it's beyond what this world can conjure up on its own. It's, it's, it's the miraculous. And, and when God's kingdom is infiltrating our world, the place where we are, there will be rejoicing continually because the people the people will see it and they'll say, surely God is in this place. They'll walk away going, like, I can't quite explain how I feel about what's going on. I've never experienced anything quite like it. There's something here I can't explain. And when those kinds of descriptors are being used for a marriage, for a family, for a small group, for a church, that's what causes the rejoicing. It's it's what creates an atmosphere of worship and awe, of rejoicing and praise. It's when God works and his presence and power are evident and it draws us. That draws us naturally into worship like nothing else. And we'll never be able to manufacture that on our own because it springs from a genuine, powerful work of God. The people saw Jesus heal this woman who they, who they all knew. She was part of that synagogue community. She had been there week after week. And they had gotten to a place where they couldn't help her, not in, not in the way Jesus did. They couldn't help her like that. And so when she was helped like that, they knew it had to be God. And, and I'm just saying all of that is what we're going after too, isn't it? That, that continual joy, that celebration, that worship of God, that that being vertical with him as a result of the things that we see him evidently doing. Now, God is getting glorified. The believers are rejoicing in it all. And then we, we see that not everybody was happy about the healing. In fact, when Jesus works in this way, a religious types, that's who we're going to talk about next, religious types are going to be put in their place when God works in this really unique way. And that's no less true today than it was back then, that we have religious types today. This is always a temptation for us to fall into religiosity. And it's so damaging. Look at verse 14. The ruler of the synagogue, indignant, he's mad. He's mad about a healing. Indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days in which, to, in which work. So he's equating, even though the scriptures never do this, he's equating healing with working. Okay, this is, this is his logic. There are six days in which work ought to be done. This next line is one of those where everybody's listening to it and then you turn to the person beside and you say, did he really just say that? Do I have this right? Come on those days and be healed, not on the Sabbath day. It would be so much more convenient if you could schedule your, hearing, your healing for like the working days. I mean, they're all bent out of shape. And, and it is they, because when Jesus addresses them, he addresses them in the plural. So this synagogue leader, he's just speaking for a, for a bunch of leaders who are there who are mad about this. 
They're bent out of shape over Sabbath rules that were, listen now, based on a principle of Scripture, but then oral tradition and kind of extra rules were added to that that actually went beyond the Bible. And, and, and they codified these rules so much so that they then determined if you do these things, you're holy. If you don't do these things, you're unholy. I, I, I'm not sure who I want to pick on in this moment. We could pick on Baptists or Brethren or Reform. Who would you like to pick on? It doesn't matter. Pentecostals, Anglicans, you can just take your pick. Salvation Army, all of it. I have, I have experience in several of those uh, backgrounds, and uh, we have the temptation to go in the very same direction, but how many of us here would just say we grew up in a church situation where there were a bunch of rules that went beyond the Bible, and those determined whether you were holy or not? Just raise your hand if that's you. Raise it high. It's okay. One of the rules was we couldn't raise our hand in church. <laughs> I feel so uncomfortable right now. So, so this, is, this is the way this played out, okay? So you teach the Bible, you, you make application of the Bible, and then you take the application in these churches and you make it a rule. And then the rule then becomes equal to the Bible, but you made up the rule. You wanna see how this plays out? Here's some great verses. Be holy even as I am holy. Or uh, let there be no appearance of evil or um, be not drunk with wine, or your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. These are all great verses from the Bible. They teach pretty phenomenal principles about living for the Lord, but then the preacher will take these and he'll apply these to, to specific situations. Be not drunk with wine then becomes, don't ever drink alcohol, even though, does the verse say that? No, it doesn't. And in fact, search high and low, you'll find no prohibition, no blanket prohibition about drinking wine or alcohol. You just won't find it. You'll find some wisdom there about not drinking, and I choose to be an abstainer because I think that's the wisest way to live. I think there's a lot of damage caused by alcohol. But I'm telling you, you can't find a verse that flat out um, uh, prohibits it. And so we make the rule in, in Baptist, you just can't drink, Period. And if you drink, you're not holy enough. Or the same thing could be said of smoking, for example, which is a disgusting habit. <laughs> and it's not good for you. And it hurts you in so many ways. But I, but I can't find a verse that says don't smoke. You see what I'm saying here? Or movie theaters. I mean, Cheryl grew up Baptist. It's okay if I say that, right? <laughs> she didn't go to a movie theater till she was 30 and married. And she was petrified. <laughs> To go in that movie theater, we saw The Fugitive with Harrison Ford. That's how long ago that was. <laughs> but, 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 see, she was in a tradition that taught if you went to a movie theater, that was just flat out wrong. And as try as I might to find a verse about movie theaters in the Bible, I haven't found one. It's, it, you see where I'm going with all of this? Or, or, or dancing, you couldn't dance, or, or, or because it was lewd, or, and, or you couldn't play cards, or maybe you were in a tradition, and, and this was my grandmother's thing, you, you had to peel your potatoes on Saturday because you couldn't, you couldn't peel, it was okay to cook them. <laughs> you couldn't peel them. Or, or some of you weren't allowed, I mean, I think some of you just had to, all day Sunday, you just had to sit on a couch and stare at the walls because you weren't allowed to play games. You, could, you couldn't take a soccer ball and go play soccer. Not in the Bible. Extra rules that we've added that determined whether we were holy or not. And yes, we need to be discerning. And yes, those are wonderful applications. And, and yes, we need to be careful what movies we watch. And yes, we need to be careful about use of alcohol. And all of this, we need to be careful. But we can't make a rule. And, and that's what this was. This, this rule about not healing was a rule of their own creation. It's not from the Bible. But from their oral traditions and supplementary rule books and these extra biblical sources, in fact, had made a rule about it's okay to go and untie your animal from the barn and take them out and water them. So that was okay. But somehow, it wasn't okay that a woman, a human being who was afflicted, 
A healthy animal could be taken to be watered, but an afflicted human being, one of God's special creations, with the very breath of God inside of her, somehow couldn't be healed. So ridiculous. And the Lord calls them out, verse 15. The Lord answered him and, and, and said, you hypocrites. Now, when he, when he calls them hypocrites, I mean, we, we have this word kind of into a tight little definition today, but it's, it's actually from the Greek. The word hypocrite actually comes directly to us from the Greek. And it was the Greek word, the common Greek word for an actor. And so, think about some famous actors. We could just say it this way. If we were using the Greek word in its original context, we would say that Tom Hanks is a wonderful hypocrite. He's a wonderful actor. And, and it's, it's just someone who is playing a part. Someone who's pretending to be something that they, that they weren't. In fact, let's think about it this way. Uh, Tom Hanks, in a recent movie, he played the part of an airline pilot. How many people saw the movie Sully? It's a good movie, right? I don't know, I haven't seen it. So, um, so he plays the part of Sully, and this was based on a true story where this uh, pilot takes off from a New York City airport, and there's like nowhere to land a plane in New York City except at an airport, and he has mechanical failure right away, and he lands the plane on the Hudson River, and it, miraculous, no one ever, ever done this before, and, and all the people are saved, boats come, they save all the people, and the whole thing, right? So Tom Hanks plays the part of Sully, the pilot who did this. But no one for a minute believes, Tom Hanks is a really good actor, but no one believes for a second that he could actually land a plane on the Hudson River. He's just an actor. He's playing a part. Sully could do it, but Tom Hanks couldn't. So that's what it means to be a hypocrite. You're, you're playing a part. You're pretending. And if you're actually an actor and you play the part well and someone, someone calls you an actor, that's actually a compliment. And they, and they give you an Oscar. And it's awesome. But, but listen, if you're not an actor and someone calls you an actor, well, that's a bit insulting, isn't it? I mean, that's a bit of a zinger. Jesus, this is what Jesus does. He, he insults these leaders. He calls them hypocrites. You're, you're just actors. And he puts them in their place. Because they're, they're just playing the part. They're pretending to be righteous. They're pretending to be faithful. They're pretending to be devoted worshipers and leaders of Yahweh. When in fact they're fakers and they're, they're actors. They're not truly interested, and they're proving it here, not truly interested in God's kingdom, which is about healing people. But they're really only interested in their kingdom, which is about rules that oppress people. And he knew that because their focus was on their legal code rather than rejoicing in God's mercy and grace on display, they couldn't see God at work through their maze of religious code. And he calls them out, verses 15 and 16. He calls them out. I mean, each of you on the Sabbath, you untie your ox, your donkey, you delete it to water. And ought not this woman, this daughter of Abraham, this true believer whom Satan is bound for 18 years, shouldn't she be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? It's all a bit silly, Jesus says. And he's got this lesser to greater argument. The lesser part is you're willing to take care of animals which have no eternal soul. They're just animals. And you're willing to take care of them from lesser to greater but you're not willing to care for this woman who's been afflicted for so long. And Jesus is challenging their misguided values because they're so messed up. And of course, as he said these things, verse 17, they, you, you know they got it. They understood what he was saying because verse 17 says, as he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame. Because Sabbath rest is a gift from God for our benefit. And Satan had perverted it 
by tying people up in, in legalistic religious knots over its practice. I love what Jesus said in Mark uh, 2, 27. He said that Sabbath, listen now, Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, Sabbath serves us. We don't serve Sabbath. And the way some people have been about this, about these legalistic codes around all of this, people have been serving the Sabbath. And really as this is playing out, here's what's happening. One commentator said this, this is not about the rules, but about who rules. This is a battle between Satan's view of things and God's view of things. And the answer is obvious that God is in control and his kingdom is coming. The healing here is tied to the messianic mission and all that was prophesied concerning Jesus. And Satan is put in his place along with these religious leaders when the healing happens. But these religious leaders, servants of Satan, they just couldn't see it. And by the way, it's not necessary to see an actual demon spirit afflicting this woman for us to understand because that's the, the language here that Satan had bound her for 18 years. We don't necessarily need to see a demon in her, but need to just understand the devil has so infiltrated this world and so perverted it and tainted it with sin that all disease, all affliction, all infirmities are the result of his evil influence and sin in this world. And that's all Luke intends with his language here. And in all of this, Jesus is really saying in effect that on the designated day of rest, the Sabbath, what could be more appropriate than a healing that brings permanent relief and rest from a debilitating affliction? Now, I would say as a church, forgive me if I've offended anybody, uh, anybody's church background as a result of the illustration, but I think we all know where I was going with this. And and, and my heart really is that our church be in a really great place with regard to legalism and the extra rules that come out of the scriptures. And I think we're in a pretty good place with all of this. Last, but last week this happened, you know, on, I, I posted this Facebook, Instagram picture uh, this past week. Uh, it's just a picture of, it's just a picture of chairs, people. And, and it became like my most active post from the last couple of months with so many likes and, and reactions. Wow. And it's chairs. Look. And, and then so many, like 50 or 60 comments. It's a picture of chairs. And, and of course, I'm just having, having some fun with the whole thing. But uh, people were kind of going off in different directions and talking about all kinds of different things. And then one very discerning member of our church said this was a dangerous question because churches have split over less. Thanks, Kathleen. <laughs> and that's absolutely true. Sadly, that's true. Churches have split over less than the choice of chairs in your new auditorium. And and again, I'm having fun because I know that you have a sweet spirit and you have a sense of humor. You'd have to, uh, to have me as your pastor. <laughs> I know that we don't take ourselves too seriously and I have a pretty good sense that we have our priorities right about uh, these things. And I, I think that you're interested in the progress at 7 George Street, so I thought it'd be interesting for you to see the cha chairs. And I, and I know this about our history. You know, we've been going now for 16 years and, and uh, almost 16 years. And for the first four years, we sat, how many people remember Emma King Ele Elementary and the molded plastic chairs? Remember those? Four years of that. And then for the past 11 years, these were like an upgrade to that. But after 11 years, you don't notice and you're just saying, well, these chairs aren't that great. Just the standard stacking chair. And, and so for 16 years now, this, this is what we've been sitting on. And, and, and I think it's, it's kind of helped us. It, it's silly even to be talking about chairs, isn't it? But, but I think it's really helped shape our values. Because when you've gone as long as we have with setting up and tearing down and sitting on chairs that aren't quite as nice as the chairs in a lot of other churches, you start to realize something pretty important that it's actually not about chairs at all. It's not ever going to be about chairs. That it's 100% about the mission that Jesus Christ has entrusted to us. And the day that we get too serious about where our butts are. <laughs> honestly, that's the day we should just shut it down and go home. Get on with our lives. Because religious types, and that's what we're talking about here. Religious types. 
they fret about chairs. They fret about styles and about colors. They fret about liturgies and saying all the right words in all the right places. They fret about particular ministry forms and programs. They fret about titles and positions, about theological systems. They're rigid about words and policies and history and precedence. Religious types want things comfortable and the same. And none of that is ever going to be us, or I swear before God, we will shut it down. We're raising a flag here for the kingdom of God. We're putting a stake in the ground, and religious types are not welcome. But those who are enjoying the grace of God and the work that he's doing and seeing his glory and reflecting his kingdom are welcome. Amen? Amen. All right. God getting the credit, believers rejoicing, religious types in their place. And you'll know that the kingdom of God has come to where you are when, finally this, uh, the hurting are being healed and helped. You can't read any of the healing encounters in the Gospels and not see the compassion and love that God, that Jesus Christ has for people. We are trapped on this earth, trapped in our sin, devastated by the consequences of sin in this world, and it's not something that God has turned a blind eye to. He cares. He loves he wants to heal and restore you. And I love in verse 12 where it, it, Jesus saw her. I mean, he's coming into the synagogue. She's coming into the synagogue. There's lots of people there. And, the, and Luke, Jesus saw her. Jesus sees you. And he knows your hurts and he knows your heartaches. He knows the pain you're going through. He knows the things that could be healed and the things that aren't going to be healed that are just going to require grace. We can miss that with each other. We can miss the heartaches and the hurts and we can be callous and cold toward one another or ignorant to the hurts of the people that are sitting right beside us. We can miss that because we only see with these eyes and because we're bearing our own hurts and burdens. But God never misses it. God sees you right where you are right now. And he loves you. The whole of his plan is a redemptive plan. It's a redemption plan. That he's making everything new again. But even as I say that, it's important for us to understand something about the kingdom of God that theologians call the now but not yet. We've talked about this before. It's an important phrase. Now but not yet. And so when we think about the kingdom of God and we think about his redemption, it is now in the sense that Jesus has come. The mission is on. That he gave his life on the cross, that, that he came to redeem us, that we have the hope in Jesus Christ of, of being relieved of all of our sin burden and being with him for eternity. The mission is on. The kingdom has come in that sense. But it's not yet in the sense that we all know we're all sitting here this morning all with our own heartaches and sorrows and pains. We all know it's not yet. We all know that we haven't received the fullness of the kingdom that that's still yet to come. And so really when we think of this, we need to think of it all as being now but not yet. It's a proposition that Jesus has put before us, started but not completed. But he is bringing redemption to every uh, part of our lives. And his love is so deep that he, his concern is so great that he, he came physically to this earth and he took on human flesh. Isaiah 53, 5, the prophet says that with his stripes we are healed. Say it. We are, we're healed. With his 
with his wounds, with his sacrifice on the cross, with all that he did in his blood shed. That's what makes the healing possible. With his stripes, we are healed. We are being healed. We will be healed now. But not yet. It's coming. Spiritual healing, emotional healing, mental healing, physical healing. It's coming for every one of us. What we read here in in these last verses we're going to look at, 10 through 13, this is the final account of Jesus ministering, in Luke's gospel anyway, the final account of Jesus ministering in a synagogue. And you might recall we looked at this earlier in our study of Luke. The first instance of Jesus ministering in a synagogue. Do you remember when this happened? It was in his hometown of Nazareth. Do you remember this story? He goes in and the synagogue leader rolled out the Isaiah scroll and pointed to the place and had Jesus read it. Do you remember how that didn't go so well? Do you remember that after Jesus read the passage, what he said was, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, were the people like super happy about that or not so much? Yeah, they were pretty angry at him. Everybody really was. And they, in fact, they were so angry at him because he had grown up right there and they didn't really think he was the Messiah. And that's really what he was claiming. They tried to throw him off a cliff. But he managed to escape. What was it that made them so angry? Well, here's what he read. This is in Luke 4, 18 to 19. It's found in Isaiah 61 and 58. Here's what he read. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, and he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. I mean, Jesus, when he says this is fulfilled in in your hearing, he's saying, I'm the fulfillment of this. I'm the Messiah. I'm the promised one. And this, these verses are telling you what the messianic mission is. This is about the gospel, the proclamation of the gospel. It's about freedom from sin, but it's about healing in every way. It's, it's, a, it's verses, it's a declaration of bring on the healing. And so let me ask you this question, because Jesus has ascended to the right hand of the Father now. He sent us the Holy Spirit, but who's, who's actually in charge of doing the helping and the healing today? Point to the person who's in charge of the, of the healing and the helping today. Point to that person. Point, 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 point. You should be pointing at yourself if you're a follower of Christ. This is, this is the continuing mandate for bringing the kingdom of God to where we are. We're the ones who have been entrusted now with the messianic mission. Jesus was bringing it to where he was. And we need to be bringing it to where we are. And Richard Halverson said this, I love this little phrase, wherever you are, God has put you there. And I, and I would add to it, where you are is the place where you should see the kingdom of God being manifest. I should see the kingdom of God around me. The responsibility for communicating and propagating the kingdom is mine. The responsibility to bring healing to the people in my world, to my world, that's my responsibility. In your home, your responsibility. In your workplace, your responsibility. In your neighborhood, your responsibility. I mean, do those places... Think about the kingdom coming to those places. Do do those places reflect the kingdom of God because you're there? Are those places being impacted by you? Do, Do they seem different because you're there? Do any of them in any way reflect the very countercultural values of the kingdom of God? Is, is, put it this way, is the mustard seed growing in those places? Is, is the dough rising? Because that's what Jesus models here. 
Check it out. Let's look at the verses 10 through 13. Now he was, he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. That's normal. That happens everywhere all the time. That's just normal operating procedure. That's, that's um, a bunch of people getting together in community, hear the teaching of the Bible. That's, that's just happening. That's happening in uh, and among believing people and, and not. That's of the world. Lots of people getting together in community in various ways. That's just normal. Verse 11, and behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over, could not fully straighten herself. That's normal. Lots and lots of hurting people in the world. And, and the hurting, lots of hurting people right here in the room. And the hurting, by the way, so many hurting people, in fact, that becomes for a lot of us so normal that it just becomes like white noise to us. We don't even really even notice that it's around us anymore. So, so that's all normal. Everything's normal so far. Verse 12, and when Jesus saw her, he called her over. Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her. Immediately she was made straight and she glorified God. And not so normal. Correct? Not, not so normal. Because that's the stuff of God's kingdom and it is not of this world. And when we see the hurting being helped and healed where we are, then we're going to know that the kingdom of God is there. And in fact, to bring some clarity to this matter of healing so that we're super clear on what we're talking about. We heal the hurt that accompanies physical disabilities with our love and acceptance of all into this community. This community called the church, this uncommon community. And this is important. The greatest healing is not physical. The greatest healing is not physical. Physical healing can still happen. But we need to be careful with these so-called faith healers who actually cheapen the genuine work of God through their fakery. They too are hypocrites and actors. So the greatest healing is not physical, but that of heart and mind, of soul and spirit. And we make it only about the physical remedy. We miss out on the greater work that Jesus actually wants to do in a person's life, the greater work that he intends, that we would see the kingdom of God coming to where we are and genuinely changing lives for eternity. And so I'm charged up about all of that. I'm charged up about healing and helping. All the healing and helping that's happening, in fact, through you and through our partnerships, through the ministries that we're running in the initiatives that are happening here. And I want to mention some of these just before we get ready to go back into worship. But, you know, I'm, I'm excited about our 5,000 hours project. And you know that we are just oh so close, so close to finishing our 5,000 hours goal. And, and I can't wait to reset that clock and do it in a shorter period of time. But we're so close and I'm hoping to just even this would compel us, this message would compel us to get back out there and volunteer and do something else to impact this community for Christ so that we can hit that 5,000 hours soon. I'm so excited about, you know, we have some members of our church that are so engaged in some ministries in, in this city that are bringing a healing and help to the hurting. I think about a Selena Frechette and the Cove Youth, Youth Initiative that we're just really getting off the ground to help vulnerable teens in our city, teens that would never come near the church necessarily, who are just in such a desperate situations and just need someone to talk to to help them with mental health issues. And I'm so grateful for that and for that ministry. I'm grateful for the Pregnancy Resource Center. And when I start thinking about all the babies that you know, it's been more than 10 years now of just helping moms and, and dads and, and tell them they can, they can carry this baby and coming along with some really practical help and loving them in Jesus' name and all the babies that have been born as a result in the last decade. that wouldn't have been born. That's awesome. That's healing. That's the kingdom of God. I think about the simplicity of feeding people. Some people in our city, they're hungry. They don't have the money to buy the food. And just how easy it is for us to bring some food and put it in a bucket in the, in the lobby and, and, and just to feed people. It just in my mind, there's nothing simpler than that. 
and, and I know this church, and I know what you can do, and I know the resources that we have available to us, and I look at those buckets in the lobby and how many there are, and I'm going, I don't think there's enough buckets. Do you think there's enough buckets? Do we need to fill all those buckets and empty them and fill them all again? Do we need to call for more buckets? Food bank, more buckets, please. Because we want to heal and we want to help. I think about orphans that we're helping in Nigeria and Dayo and Tino Udowu and their passion for their home country, their city, and for orphans in, in that town of Ibadan, Nigeria. We're bringing healing. We're helping the hurting. I think about church planting. You know, we're planting a new church this year in Yaoundé, Cameroon, one of our partnerships. We're bringing a new church plant, our new pastor into Douala, the first church that we planted there. And I've been talking regularly with Pastor Scott Hamilton in Glasgow, and he has a vision to see a Harvest Bible Chapel in every major city in Scotland. And he's getting people there in May to go and just pray through some of those cities. That's the whole mission. Just go to Scotland. Somebody wants to go and do that? Go to Scotland and pray that that country will be healed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I love that our vision here is once we're established at 7 George Street, start thinking about our county again and to have a Harvest Bible Chapel presence within a 20-minute drive of every person in Simcoe County. That means that in time, we want to see a harvest in Orillia and in Midland Penetanguishene and in Collingwood with Sega Beach and in the Alliston area. God, help us do that. Help us bring healing. Help us proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of these places. And then I think about 7 George Street. And I think about how that address and that building is going to shape our ministry in the years to come. that God would allow that place to be a, a place of hope and healing and help for people in every way that they need that help. Is that your prayer? Is that what you're hoping for too? Because that's what it means to have the kingdom of God come to where we are. Let's go for that. Amen. Thanks so much for listening. We always love hearing about the work God's doing in our listeners. If God's been doing a work in you, send us an email at info at harvestberry.ca. And remember, you are loved.